Happy Father's Day to every father that's out there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Business Politics 318. Today is such an important day for me. It is Father's Day, and I don't have the opportunity to be home with my father. And I just want to give a wonderful shout out to my father, whom, whom I love a whole bunch. So, Daddy, who I call Sweets, Sweets, I love you so much. This episode is dedicated to you. Uh, I wish I could be there with you. I'm sorry that I'm not able to be home with you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And just as Mr. Butler talks about on this episode, when I get the chance to see you, I'm going to make sure I pamper you for the day and that you get a day off where you don't have to make any major decisions, but you can watch TV or do whatever you want for the entire day. Or I just take you out to a restaurant and all that kind of good stuff and you still get pampered. So I love you and daddy, this episode is for you. I love you, sweets. Welcome to Business Politics 318, where we are taking our smiles back, back, from the stressful challenges of games of politics. Now, today is Father's Day, June the 16th, and I have a special guest with me. Um, His name is BJ Butler, and we have decided to do this segment on a whim. It so happened that um, I was up in the middle of the night And I got online and I was on my Facebook and I saw that. um, No, actually, it was before that. um, I just had like this this vision of um, one of my friends who kind of came to mind. And I just went on Facebook then to just check to see, um, you know, how he was doing. And he was actually online in the middle of the night as well. So after talking with him about some things, I decided, you know what? I want him on the podcast. So this was not planned at all. We are totally doing this on a whim, but I think he has such a good story and advice to share. So first of all, BJ Butler, thank you so much for coming on the podcast at such a short notice, and I'm so happy to have you here. Well, thank you for even asking me to uh, participate in your podcast. This is awesome. So before we begin, this is one of those questions that many children, even grown adults, want to know. So when it comes to like giving mothers something on Mother's Day, it's kind of easy to, to get the flowers and, you know, the candy and things like that, that we know that our mothers love. But sometimes it's hard to know what fathers want, especially fathers who are so good at taking care of the family. You know, it's kind of like people think, well, what is it that my dad needs? So can you give the audience just kind of your idea of what people can give their fathers for Father's Day that fathers really like, really like to have? You know, I believe uh, one of the main things that a lot of fathers like to have is just a day of peace. And what I mean by that is it's natural for us to have a lot of responsibilities on our plate every single day. But on Father's Day, if you're thinking about what can I do for my father, you can always take him out to eat. Uh, have a home cooked meal, but for that day, take 
any responsibilities that he have off his plate for that day, um, allow him to just relax, not make any decisions, just just pamper him for a day. And pampering for a man is as simple as it could be just uh, letting him watch sports all day. Um, it could be just reading a book. But the, the biggest thing that a lot of men look forward to is just a, a time where they can just relax and not have to make any major decisions. That's that's wonderful. That's wonderful. What is it that you want for Father's Day in particular, based upon what you were talking about? Is there anything in, specifically, if your daughters are listening to this podcast episode, what would you like? <laughs> You know, I always appreciate it when my daughters just sit down and just kind of share their heart with me, not asking me anything, just really just kind of sharing their heart, what they want to do. And um, my youngest daughter in particular is very fond of just uh, telling me how much she appreciates everything I do. And um, I enjoy hearing that because it's it's kind of like a plant in the seed. Uh, the things that you instill in your children when they're younger, when they're older, you get to actually partake of the fruits when you look at the work that they're actually doing you know that you help to contribute that in your child so again uh that's one of the things i can look forward to is just really having a heart-to-heart conversation uh, today with her oh that's wonderful yeah that's wonderful so i hope you have like an amazing amazing father's day Um, So I really want to talk about internal politics. So a lot of times in the other episodes that we were, that I've been discussing with some of my other guests, like Dora Daniels, um, Dr. A. Clifton Miles, and Dr. Sasha Johnson, and even for myself, I had been talking a lot about the stressful politics that go on not just in the workplace but in a higher level which is which i call business entity politics and uh listeners you can definitely go back to the other episodes and and listen to those other ones uh, the other episodes but today is kind of different you know i want to talk about the internal politics that we go through as entrepreneurs and as business people and also i want to talk about uh, from a man's perspective what men who are entrepreneurs or business men and fathers experience so that's what we're going to be talking with um, BJ about. So before we we get into the, the real meat of the discussion uh, or the core of the discussion, can you please tell people what your career was like before you became an entrepreneur slash your own, you know, business, business person? What was your career before? Well, I was in the military. I was active duty for about eight years. And then I went into the reserves. Um, I was a single father at the time, so that was part of the reason for my transition from active duty to the reserves. And I was I went civil service at the same time, so I, essentially I had two jobs as a single father, uh, working for the government from two different perspectives. Um, my career, for the most part, was more focused on just being able to provide for my children at that particular time. Uh, and move up as as fast as I could. And what was it about, um, why did you think that going um, reserves was just a better choice in terms of dealing with your children? Uh, the, the military itself, 
uh, was good to me. Uh, eight years was was good, and I really didn't want to let it go. So I just decided to try the reserves to see, you know, if if I would like it or not. And after a year or two, I did my time and uh, said to myself, well, this is pretty simple. Uh, same amount of work, but it's just a weekend warrior. But uh, I just ended up staying and time went on from there. It, uh, I didn't miss a beat from active duty going into the reserve. It was just uh, less time spent in the military. So you found that it was more quality time with your daughters? Yes, that was the main thing. Um, uh, because of the job I had in the military, I was spent a lot of time away from my children. So by going into the reserves, I was able to have the best of both worlds. I'm still able to serve my country and also be, be there for my children for their events and help them with homework every night and things that a father enjoy doing. Now, how did you transition into becoming an entrepreneur? It's from one book, uh, the book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, I remember when I read the book, um, I was surprised uh, about how simple the book was, but upon completion of the book, it really changed my mindset. I realized that what he said in the book was not being taught in school. And it was so simple that I realized that I can do this if I want to. Um, I can become an entrepreneur. And I always felt like I was meant to do more than just work a job. The ideal of working a job until you're 65 and getting a Rolex watch and sitting on the porch during your retirement years um, just wasn't appealing to me. Wow. Wow. Really? Why? Why was Because some people, you know, there are some people who feel like, you know, that's just what I'm supposed to do. I'm just supposed to, you know, stay there in that one job, maybe two jobs and just, you know, some people have that kind of that um, they were raised that way that they stayed in that job and that's just what they do and they retire from that. And then that's just it. You know, what was different about you that made you just say, that's just not for me? Well, some of my uh, values are based upon the uh, biblical principles. And I believe in the Bible, it talks about the uh, mentions that we are called and not everyone accepts the call. And for a while, I used to think that the calling was limited to being a pastor. As I mature with my understanding of the, of the word of God, I realize a calling is more than just a position in the church, just a position in life that's really a position in the kingdom of God. Yeah. And with that being said, I realize there are people hurting, regardless if you're atheist or, or, or your, your denomination, people are hurting, people need help. And the one thing that I realized as a Christian that we have an abundance of is love. Uh, it should be unconditional love, but love nonetheless. And I realized in your jobs, your job limit you. Uh, they limit your behavior. They limit the conversations. There are certain things you, you cannot discuss uh, in the job. I've been government pretty much uh, since high school and I have worked part-time jobs outside of the government. But uh, there are things you just you can't discuss. And I realized like being in the military, even though we understood the rules, when you're spending, you know, days out to sea, weeks and months out to sea with the same people over and over. You talk about any and everything. 
and you begin to realize that you may be from different parts of the country, uh, different values, uh, different uh, edu- educational uh, experiences, that what unite us as human beings that we all cry, we all experience pain and loss, uh, love, but there's no one really out there connecting us, connecting those things to connect people, to bring us all together. And I realized from a biblical perspective that if my job is limited in me, maybe this is not where God had placed me, but I was actually placed here because my focus was following society's values of go to school, get a job, stay at the job until you retire and your reward is a retirement check. But my understanding led me to believe there is no guarantee that you will even live to see a retirement check or you may live long enough to truly enjoy your retirement based upon society's values. Wow. Wow. So, so what kind of things do you do differently knowing that when you said there's no guarantee that, that, that we will even live to see a retirement check. So with that kind of view, what kind of things do you do differently in your life as an entrepreneur, personally or professionally? Uh, a few things I started doing. Initially, uh, I, I started my uh, TSP, which is a 401k in the government. Um, my attitude was even in the government, you're not guaranteed to stay in government. Things can happen. And I wanted to make sure I had money saved up. I began telling others and in a way kind of training or teaching them what I learned from the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and explain to them that, especially more of my daughters, that um, getting a job is, is good, but finding your purpose or understanding what your purpose is in life is even better because when you understand your purpose, the true fulfillment comes from that. And it may bring a lot of money, may bring a little bit of money, but the joy of fulfilling your purpose is the greatest reward I think a lot of people are negligent in. Wow. Uh, so and I'll add to that. So uh, I dabble with a couple of network marketing um, organizations. Um, it was one of them I believed in at the time, really believed in because my thing was now here I am trying to become an entrepreneur and selling things was, was a challenge for me. I, it, in order for me to sell anything, I have to believe 100% in the product, not in what someone's telling me, but what I see the results are. Right. And there were some things that I just I struggled with and didn't last long. And the one I managed to do okay with, um, I just didn't remain motivated. Um, I wasn't around like-minded people that would help keep me going. So that kind of feels a lot, but I never lost the desire to be an entrepreneur. Once the light came on that this is another way to create a lifestyle that I want for my, myself and for my family. And there's a a final point I've discovered about myself that the way I operate is in order for me to share anything about myself or anything I do, whether it's health related or, or a business, I have to have gone and participated with the business or have done it myself. And then I turn around and I go back and I help others that I know that are struggling or others who are, who have the same questions and I give them the answers or I encourage them in the direction they need to go so they can come where I am. I don't, 
I don't believe that um, as you move up in the world and moving up, I define that as moving up financially, moving up in understanding of life, moving up um, academically, uh, whatever ever it is, but you go back and you, and you go and help others. And I think that's a, a unofficial responsibility that we all have as human beings. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, there is a, there is this amazing um, entrepreneur from a healthcare software company called Once Logics. Um, he's the chief financial officer there, Ty McLaughlin. He had a quote and he said, what people don't realize about selling is that selling is not natural. It doesn't necessarily come natural for people. And that's what a lot of those who are in the selling business don't understand. They get kind of frustrated with themselves when they see that, that their experiences, they're experiencing challenges with selling. Do you, how, how, do, how do you rectify that for yourself? Because in your, in your business, and we're going to talk soon about what it is that you do, but have you found that selling has been a challenge? And how did you rectify this to, to work on being more successful at selling? The challenge I had uh, for the longest was um, the ideals that salespeople represent, uh, the stereotypes. Um, is this person uh, selling me snake oil? I kind of had the ideal that I, w I was on the defensive end that um, in my mind, I just believe that there were a lot of barriers that were going to make it difficult to be a salesperson. Um, because for one, for one, I say as an African-American male, uh, just going up to uh, people, um, and I even, I'm guilty of this at times myself, that when someone, a stranger approaches me, that the first thing that they're going to ask me for is money or ask me for something. Yeah. And um, I did not want to fit in that category that, that actually slowed me down from becoming an entrepreneur. And then the times I would, the rejection didn't help the, my progression of being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. That was something else I learned that I didn't like rejection. I don't think anybody does, but uh, my, level of uh, my threshold for rejection was higher than normal um it took a long time to realize that and this is what and just go back to what i said earlier when i believe in something when i believe in a product when i believe in what i'm doing it makes it easier not so much to sell now but to share what it is that i can do for you what it is that i'm doing i'm sharing this because i believe in it and the reality is that Somebody out there needs what I'm, I'm sharing with them. It's not for everyone. So when I realized that's the mindset I need to have, because there's, there's lots of people out here, there's 300 million people in the U.S., and there's pockets of people that may only want your, your product. Right. So don't focus on the 300 million people. Just focus on that pocket of people by putting myself out there and putting the product out there, and then those that need it, it will, they will be attracted by me sharing my story. Wow. So let's talk about what it is that you do. So can you tell the, the listeners 
that um, what is it that you do as an entrepreneur? Can you explain that to them? Give them a brief biography? So I'm an author. I'm, I've released my first book about four years ago, uh, Spiritual Thoughts, Human Error, God's Correction. The second one will be released this year. Uh, I'm also a real estate investor. Uh, right now, I'm currently managing a rental property. And my other business is Network Market again. Uh, I'm a representative for Juice Plus. Uh, and what Juice Plus is, is uh, basically it helps people to uh, restore their health. Um, it's fruits and vegetables in a capsule. How did you get into that? Well, with the uh, Juice Plus, uh, I saw an event titled, Are Your Thoughts Making You Sick? at a local uh, university and I decided to attend. And the, when the speaker spoke, her presentation was actually in line with some things I was just jotting down the last couple of weeks. When it comes to health, I'm very passionate about health. I believe that our health is tied to our thoughts. And, and not to get really deep into this, but you know, I understand that a lot of things that's put into our foods that actually make the food somewhat addictive makes it harder for us to maintain good health. But I've always believed that God put it in the ground. Man came out of the ground. The best way to keep your health healthy is to eat straight from the ground. Fresh and frozen is my attitude when it goes, when it comes to grocery shopping. So when uh, she said some things and a lot more, and I realized a lot of us tend to feed our taste buds, but we don't feed our bodies. Wow. And there's a difference. We eat for pleasure. Wow. I see. Right. So we're not eating to live. We're living to eat. Exactly. And yeah, I gotcha. So I want to go back really quickly to what you were talking about rejection. Rejection, as you said, is something that no one likes, but there are some people who give up because they can't take the rejection. For what you're able to share with us, only what you're comfortable sharing, can you talk about what caused you to, as you said, that you had kind of, it was kind of hyper feelings towards rejection. That was just something that was, that really impacted you. Could you kind of give the listeners, especially the dads who are listening to this podcast, um, who are entrepreneurs or really working towards that, what was it that really caused you to start feeling rejection? Just whatever it is. I don't care if, it's, if it takes, if you take us back to when you were two years old, but anything. What, what, was, that? <laughs> what was it? So I believe my rejection, because it's still an ongoing process, but from what I've discovered so far, I believe my rejection was tied to my low self-worth of myself. One of the things I uh, used to do as a child, I used to talk a lot. At that time, I can say that, you know, the parents of that time, and I, my mother was a great mother, but and it was my family in general used to uh, call me mouth almighty, mighty mouth, tell me, boy, you talk too much. They told me I was going to become a lawyer because I talked all the time. Um, I used to ask a lot of questions. I got to a point where I got tired of being called those names, and I said, you know what, I'm going to fix them. I'm, I'm going to hurt them. And I said, I won't say nothing. Um and I found myself just shut myself up a lot of times, even though I knew a lot of things. And I kind of buried that, ignored it for the longest. So imagine now, maybe 20 years later, here I am, um, I'm a single parent of, of two girls. And this is in the early 2000s. 
at that time, it was unheard of for a man to have custody of his children, especially girls. Right. So I have really no one to talk to, um, especially as a father, because, you know, either if the father's in the in the picture, he's with the mother as well and married or raising the children together or he's out of the child's life. So with that being said, um, I felt like I was alone. I felt like I was somewhat of an anomaly because of that reason. I didn't think I could get help. And then when I tried to get help, you know, I was told by um, the state that uh, there are programs out there, but all the programs are geared towards women only. There's nothing out there for men. So here I am not really having a lot of a strong self-esteem about myself. And here I'm getting rejected. So and I found myself having somewhat some animosity towards women at that time, but it didn't last long because I felt like, wow, you know, I'm a father trying to take care of my children and there's nothing out here for me. There's no one out here for me to, to help me. So I had bouts of depression, but it didn't last long because I would remind myself, my children are here. They need me to take care of them. They didn't ask to be here. So the pity party wouldn't last long. I get off what I call the dance floor, turn the music off and, and went back out there and started prov- making sure I was provided for my children um, and anything that I can instill in them to make them better for their generation, I made sure I would do. So um, you asked me about the rejection, but I mentioned all of that because I realized the rejection was just um, an outreach from the low self-worth that I had of myself. Wow. I mentioned the one of the executives, um, Ty McLaughlin, who talks about the whole idea of selling and things like that. And his counterpart, um, Roderick Brown, said something that I thought was amazing, too. Um, he said that you can't afford to wait for someone else to inspire you, to talk to you, to yell at you, to affirm you, to bless you, to fill you up, to pray for you until you're full, you can't pour into someone else. You said that, you know, for a while there, you know, you had the pity party and then you said, no, I've I've got to, I've got to get up. You know, I've got to get up. What, how were you able to inspire yourself to get up? How are you, how are you able to quote unquote, yell at yourself to affirm yourself, to make sure that you were blessed enough to get up and say, you know what? No, enough. I'm going to go in and continue to fight and take back what's mine you know, what's been taken away from me? I, you know, my daughters, my daughters uh, helped me to create, uh, well, helped me to recognize my identities. Um, When you're a child, you're a child, you become an adult. When you enter in a relationship, you are still a man or a woman, but now you're a boyfriend and girlfriend. When you become a parent, now you are a man or woman. You're also a boyfriend, girlfriend, wife or husband. Now you're a mother and a father. Uh, raising my daughters alone and working two jobs, um, I, one thing I learned from them is that, you know, as soon as I picked them up, they had so much they wanted to share, tell me how their day went. I needed time to transition. So it got to a point where I would tell them, give me five to 10 minutes, let me sit on the chair. And when I get up, then you could tell me everything about what happened at school today and I'm going to cook dinner. And they understood and they would give me five to 10 minutes and I would literally just sit in the recliner and it's as if I was taking off my work hat 
and I was putting on my daddy hat. Now I'm in daddy mode for the next three to four hours from, from that time till I put him in bed. So with that being said, the yelling came from me as a man yelling to myself as a man, my daughters need me. I'm yelling to the father in me, you need to take charge. You need to be there. So the father in me took more of the lead role in my life. So everything I did, I had to mirror before my daughters because I believe that parents are, parents are, your, are the first teacher in a child's life, right. uh, whether they know it or not. And it's the things that you say, and it's also the things that you do in front of them that they learn. So I did not want them to learn, uh, at least where I was at that time, um, my challenges. What I want them to learn was I wanted them to be children and to enjoy their life. So the father in me took more of the lead in my uh, lead role in my life. I went from father to a worker. That part of me as a man kind of took a back seat to the back of the bus, if, if I'm still making sense. Yes. And and as I so now if I start moving forward now as they're getting older now here I am reading the book Rich Dad Poor Dad so that awakened the man in me is like wow this this is something I know I need to do because now I want to be able to tell my daughters when they get older you need to own businesses and not just tell them because I read a book but I'm actually living the life of owning a business and, and showing it in front of them so the more I began to nurture myself the man the more I began to grow and I began to heal a little bit more and I found the courage and the strength to stand up more and say, okay, I can, I can take the lead again as, as the man and the father can kind of take a step back because the, my daughters are getting older now. So I, I discovered that even within my own life, there were, there were periods that I transitioned and I had to be able to distinguish between the two. But the one thing that I didn't want to bleed over was my, life as a man with my daughters, because that's the part I think would have confused them at that time when I was still kind of searching my own way in life. Because to be honest, um, a lot of people want to go to college right after high school. I had no clue of what I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to stay in the small town where I grew up in in South Carolina. and I didn't want to live in the city, you know, New York, that's where I'm originally from, because at this time now I'm a parent and um, I wanted a lifestyle that was somewhat in the middle of both. Wow. BJ, do you know I didn't know you were originally from New York? I had no idea. No wonder why you know so much about New York. When we Yes, Brooklyn. <laughs> I this is so wonderful. Now, you were talking to me before, before this episode, in the middle of the night when, when we were on Facebook chatting, you were talking about leaving a legacy for your children. Can you talk to me about that? Why, why has that been a thought in your head? And what are you doing to leave that legacy? Well, so Zara, um, as parents, we automatically leave a legacy behind with our children. Um, The revelation I've gotten this past year is that we have been, uh, once again, looking through society's eyes, we've associated a legacy as leaving a house and car and money behind. But when I talk with people and I look at my own family and look at other families, I realize there's things like um, somebody may have had uh, 
the, the drunk uncle in the family. That's all he did. He or she, our drunk aunt, that's all they did. And when they passed away, what are you going to remember about that individual? You're going to remember that that person drank his entire life away. Right. And I realized that we've limited the definition of legacy, at least I did, and I needed to expand that. So I realized that I have to be intentional as well as I've already been unintentional now. Now I need to be intentional about what it is that I want to leave behind for my daughters. How will they remember me? How will others remember me? Because I believe your name is more valuable than gold itself. Wow. Because sometimes your your children can get into places because the parents may have had a good name, a good reputation within a, a neighborhood or with a job. And because of your reputation, well, they want the children to come into this place of employment or this place of business just because of the name. So I realized that, you know, I need to work with my daughters. And, but more importantly, I need to work more on myself first. So when I work with them, I know what I'm talking about. And I have uh, physical evidence to show them. Uh, a good example is when now my book sold and um, four years ago, I got a royalty check about four months later and I was so shocked, so surprised. I mean, I mean, you would have thought it was a million dollars and it didn't matter. <laughs> the amount was like, I got a royalty check. And when my daughters came home from school, I'm smiling and I'm explaining to them I'm like, OK, this is a royalty check. As long as people keep buying books. Uh, I keep getting these checks and this is what you want to do. You want to have uh, other passive streams of income coming in. And I felt I was so proud of myself because it took me, and I didn't say this earlier, I sat on the book for about four years because I was struggling with all the uh, thoughts of what people may say about the devotional. And what I mean by that is um, because this is devotional, somebody would say, well, this scripture doesn't mean this. Oh, you're using it out of context. Um, all the things that I was thinking about people would say, it were all in my head and they, and they imprisoned me or I imprisoned myself through fear. Fear was the warden for four years before I finally released the book. And when I released the book, the first person that came up to me said, thank you, man, because I really needed to hear this. The first thing I read in your book spoke to my heart. And he was like, bro, you don't know how much this means to me. And I told him, you don't know how much this means to me. So when I realized that what I had in me, in my mind, in my heart, in my notebook is sitting on my nightstand, somebody's waiting to hear it. I realized that, you know what, we have so much, so many, so we have a lot of gifts and talents within us that we have allowed society to uh, guide us on how we should live our lives instead of living the life that God has created us to live, which means on purpose and in purpose. So though that being said, I realize now my part of my legacy is that my book, my book impacted at least one person. It was impacted a lot of people and they've told me, but now when they see my daughters, they may say something. They're like, yeah, your daddy's a great author. God used him with this book. Or they may see me in another business venture where I was, my rental property that I have, the family have told me that I've been a, such a blessing to them. And I begin to realize that, you know, the way you treat people now becomes part of your legacy later on. So we have wow. to think beyond the ideal of, of a legacy is just leaving a, a mansion behind or a Mercedes Benz. No, how you live your life is your legacy now. How do you feel about, there are some people who live a life one way in front of people, but their families know them to be different. 
So in public, they live this life where everybody thinks that they're like wonderful, a superstar, et cetera. But then when those, when that person comes home, they're known to be, you know, cruel to the family. They're, they're known to not communicate with the family. They shut down. They, they may be, you know, verbally abusive, things like that. What do you think causes that disconnect between people being perceived one way in public, but then in private, they're another way? Uh, they're a public success and a private failure. Failure. Oh, wow. So I attended an event last weekend, and uh, uh, about two weekends ago in Vegas called Thrive. And uh, it was a business event for entrepreneurs. And it was uh, hosted by Cole Hatter with uh, he, all of his speakers were millionaires and billionaires, and they were very transparent with their testimonies of how they came to be where they are right now. Uh, one of the speakers, um, he actually went off because he said that he did not like some of the millionaires that he knew of because they fake it. Um, he, he was stating that they act as if they have some type of superpower that they never made mistakes. And what I learned from him, what I already suspected was you have more value when you remain true to who you are than you do when you lose your soul just to gain wealth. Wow. And the value that I'm referring to is not the financial value, but you have human value. You have relatable value because now people feel like they can talk to you. There's nothing more valuable in this country right now than the human experience because right now social media has zapped a lot of that um, personal interaction away from us. We, we feel like we're connected to people because we read what they post, but true connection comes from spending time with one another physically one-on-one talking on the phone so when i hear uh someone that maybe a millionaire a ceo uh having issues at home that tells me that they were poor relationally they didn't have trusted people that they could talk to that they that would keep them in check that would say hey man hey lady you need to get this together you need to stop cursing out your family or beating them up or emasculating them you need counseling you need people like that in your, in your corner. Um, I can only use MC Hammer as an example when I think about his story from what I read. Um, he, was a, he was a philanthropist. He lost a lot of money, but he was giving it away. But um, from what I read, he didn't have a lot of people around him to kind of check him. And when I hear about some people that may have committed suicide and people saying, well, he, he or she he was a millionaire. What was wrong with them? It's like, no, money doesn't change. What changes is that what money does is amplify who you already are. Right. So if you were, if you had, uh, if you isolate yourself from a lot of people and you believe that you don't need anybody, now you're a millionaire. Now you have a lot of people reaching out to you. Well, now you, you, they're reaching out to you, but not for the reason that you want them to reach out to you. And you feel even emptier than you were when you you weren't a millionaire and, and I'm speculating, but just from a lot of the stories I hear and I've read, uh, uh Dennis, uh, Kimbrough's book, uh, the wealth choice. Um, and, and some of the stuff that I remember out of the book, it was the same thing. Value comes from the relationships we have with each other. That's the true value. And when you're lacking in that money doesn't change that money creates a lot of options for you, 
but money doesn't change that. Um, so, th- so that's my thoughts uh, when I when I think about people who have um, struggles at home. And I'm not saying that there's such a thing as a perfect relationship. We all have uh, flaws in our relationships. Um, but there are some that you realize um, to whom much is given, much is required. So as you move up financially in, in our American society, you have a greater responsibility to be more aware and vigilant of what's going on in your personal life in your, uh, with your immediate family and friends. And that's something I think that uh, I, I suspect some people take that for granted because they look at money being the solution when really um, the solution, I believe, is already within us, meaning within our hearts and within our minds, um, forgiving somebody for something or, or going back to childhood issues that were left unresolved that that now need to be resolved in order to have a better business or to have a better family life. So there, there are some fathers, since this is the Father's Day special, there are some fathers who feel like they don't need a mentor, that because of their age or because they, they are fathers, that basically there's nothing else that they need to learn from another man. What would you say to those men who feel that way? So uh, I was one of those men that felt that way um, in my early 20s. And, and as I matured, I, I intentionally matured. And what I mean by that is um, I began listening to other men, other parents. And what I realized is that, you know, I look at life like a toolbox. None of us have all the tools we need, um, especially as fathers. We don't have all the tools we need to parent um, our children. Um, if we were fortunate to have our parents in our homes growing up as a child, we're usually going to take things from their upbringing of, of us into our childhood. Oh, I, I talk, I'm sorry, into our parenting of our children. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also begun to learn that, you know, especially at work um, as the fathers, we would talk about you know things our children are doing, and there are things that I've heard another father was doing that I was not doing. And I would say, Oh, I like that. And I would incorporate that into my toolbox and, and bring that home and do that with my children. And I, and I realized, I think with fathers, a lot of time as men, um, pride prevents us from really speaking out. Um, we have our unofficial code. We feel like we can't ask for help. Um, we think we can do things on our own and, and truth be told, we do need help. Uh, we're not put on this planet by ourselves. We didn't make the children by ourselves. Um, there are other fathers. There's some fathers out there that are begging for help. Uh, I had the chance to talk with a young father. Uh, well, he's a surrogate father. He's actually an uncle with his uh, niece. Uh, he got custody of her about two years ago. And my daughter was telling me he's asking a lot of questions. And she's telling him, well, this is what my father did. This is what my father did. And I told her, I said, you know, give him my number. He can call me anytime. And I finally had a chance to talk with him. And I was just telling him there's different things because as a man, you feel like you're less of a man if you ask him for help. And truth be told, you are more of a man when you ask for help because it takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to show that you need help. It's not a sign of weakness, but it's actually a sign of strength when you need help. And you'll find out that there are a lot of people willing to help you 
as a father to, because they want to see you succeed. There are a lot of people out there that is um, men and women, older men, older women, they want to see you succeed. And we don't give other people permission to speak into our lives. I'm not saying everyone, but there are some people that, that mean the best for us and want the best for us, but they will not speak into our lives because they feel like they may be uh, intrusive if they did so. So fathers, um, if they're your, your good friends out there, talk to them, just ask them what they're doing with their children. Um, whatever it is that you have questions about, or if you don't want to ask a question directly, uh, just talk about the experience that you had that didn't go well. And, and then you can ask the, uh, the other father, did you ever experience anything like this? And then they can share what they did and they may have did something that was much better. And then you can take that as a lesson learned and add it to your toolbox and pass it down to your children. That is amazing. So before we end this episode, I have two more questions. One question is, what is one of your most favorite quotes that a father has ever told you or a quote that inspires our listening our listeners who are fathers so either or what is that quote <laughs> uh my favorite quote actually uh is you must be the change you want others to see wow. it's my favorite quote and i'm butchering it but <laughs> In order to change others, you must be for the world. Be for others what you want them to be. I'm I'm messing that quote up right now. Okay, it's okay. We get the gist of it. That's that's excellent. Um, and for any listeners who just want to reach out to you, any fathers who just kind of want to say, you know, BJ, this was such a good episode. I just want to reach out to you, talk with you, or have access to your book, anything like that. How can they reach you, whether it's social media, whether it's email, what are you comfortable, whatever you're comfortable giving, how can those fathers reach out to you? So on Facebook, you can find me as BJ Butler, and you will see my profile picture. I'm actually standing in the uh, press conference room of the USDA office. So it, it's the official government podium. So that's how you'll know it's me. On Instagram, you can reach me at spiritually successful. And my email address is savinghomesyearly at gmail. Savinghomesyearly at gmail. And in the subject line, uh, put scene versus shadow so I know that you listen to this podcast. Awesome. BJ Butler, thank you so much for joining us for this surprise episode for Father's Day. It was a pleasure having you. Ms. Zara, thank you for this interview. It has truly been a pleasure just sharing with your audience. Um, I hope somebody is able to take a lot of uh, nuggets out of this and apply it to their lives. So everyone, until next time, this is Business Politics 318. Take back your smile. See you next time. And if you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts and also Google Podcasts as well. We're on Spotify and a few others. You can check out 
the main webpage at www.businesspolitics318.com to see where you can subscribe. Have a great day.